Welcome to Brands in Action, the podcast that asks the questions every brand should be asking. Today, you'll hear 2022's most downloaded episode featuring Joey Manfrey, VP Creative at Fender Musical Instruments. It's one of my favorite episodes of the year, too. Happy holidays, everyone. Here we go. Welcome to Brands in Action, the podcast that asks the questions every brand should be asking. Today, we welcome Joey Manfrey, Vice President Creative at Fender Musical Instrument Corporation. Joey is a strategic, results-oriented creative and calculated risk taker with over 10 years of experience in brand storytelling, advertising, digital product, and web design. Aside from having a creative music background, he also has extensive experience hiring, growing, motivating, and leading diverse teams to deliver business results in a fast-paced environment. His client experience also includes The Honest Company, Honda, Acura, Delta Airlines, AT&T, Bridgestone, Mercedes-Benz, Motorola, BlackBerry, Coca-Cola, and the United Way, among others. Hey, Joey, it's so good to have you on the show, man. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. I might have mentioned this in our pre-interview, but if there's a Venn diagram between this show, my love of brands, branding, and all things brand, my love of music, and my love of guitars, Fender is in the middle of that diagram. It's crazy. <laughs> This is the sort of ultimate brand to talk about for me for so many reasons. And, and uh, I've interacted with it and lived with it my entire guitar playing life, which I think I started when I was 12. So incredible. Talk about, like, tell us your story. How did you get to Fender? And I, you're a musician as well, right? Not a musician. No, kind of dabbled as a, a kid. I played all sorts of instruments, drums, and did play guitar for a while. And then there came a point when I realized I wasn't going to be the next Stevie Ray Vaughan yeah. and I was like, well, what's the point anyway? And just put it down for a long time <laughs> yeah. and then picked it up again, actually a month before the recruiter called me from Fender. So it was kind of serendipitous timing and just kind of felt like the stars were aligning a little bit. Yeah. That's amazing. So how did you end up at Fender? Talk about your career path. Cause you, you know, you've, you've worked on agency and client side, right? Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of a circuitous path. I mean, I started out kind of going to going to art school and was a sculpture major for a while. And I quickly realized that being a starving artist didn't sound all that great to me. And so started looking around at other majors that would make a little bit more money Yeah, and switch into graphic design, advertising, went to, went to SCAD and did that whole thing and came out of school and started working at advertising agencies. And the, the first spot I worked out was more of a traditional agency, you know, TV spots and out of home, things like that. Yeah. And they were fleshing out a, a digital department. And I kind of made the shift into that. And from there, kind of bounced around a couple other digital design agencies, Razorfish being the, the biggest one, working on kind of enterprise level dot-com redesigns and stuff like that. And agency world was a hell of a lot of fun, as you're well yeah. aware, you know, especially when I was coming out of college, it was like the end of the golden era of advertising when it was still kind yeah. of had Mad Men vibes a little yeah. bit. And so I loved that. You know, it was a lot of fun. But the kind of mercenary nature of it kind of got to me after a while. Yeah. And I started really wanting to work someplace that I could really give a shit about. And culturally, advertising is a bit singular, as you're probably also aware, you know, it's steaks and whiskeys and cigars and all that kind of shit. I love all that stuff. <laughs> but there came a, a time when I was just looking for something different culturally and just a different life experience. And I'd always kind of entertain the idea of starting my own business or working at a startup or something like that. And I'd, I just had uh, my first kid and the, we were talking about having a second. 
And so the, the opportunity to go work at the Honest Company came up and it kind of represented everything I was yeah. looking for. Culturally, couldn't have been more different than what I was experiencing agency side. I think the best way that was crystallized for me was at Razorfish. We had bourbon Thursdays. And when I got to Honest, we had kombucha Thursdays. <laughs> <laughs> There's a yoga studio in the office, yeah. you know, and I just moved to L.A. So it was, it was the quintessential kind of L.A. startup experience. You know, they, they were a very mission-driven yeah. brand. Yeah, I love they, that. Were, they were there to create a happier, healthier world for the next generation. And as a new dad at the time, that was something I could really invest in. I was like, all right, I, I can sign up for that. I can spend, you know, every waking moment of my life thinking about how to deliver on that promise. So it was a really compelling opportunity. It was a lot of fun. It was a wild ride. But like most startups, there was a, a lot of turmoil and everything else. And so after about a year and a half, I was <laughs> a little over it and had picked up a guitar again and was just kind of trying to find a hobby, a creative outlet, something I could yeah. do at home without you know leaving the wife and kids by themselves. And so started playing guitar again. And about a month after that, the recruiter from Fender called me and there was this incredible opportunity to go work at Fender as a creative director, working on all their digital products. And it, it just seemed like a really good fit just based on my background, what they were looking for. You know, Fender Play is a subscription yeah. product and Honest was really deep in that vein. So just kind of fit. And it, it represented an opportunity to go somewhere that was maybe more of a, a cultural brand fit for me. Although I, I really, really enjoyed the fish out of water experience that I had at Honest. Fender was a little bit more in my wheelhouse. More fish in water? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, you seem like maybe you're a pretty mission-driven guy. It seems like you want to work somewhere that kind of has something that they believe in that they want to do. I didn't know that for a while. And still, I don't know if I would like necessarily articulate it that way, but I think it's an accurate statement. I didn't really sit down and put it into words in that way, and I wasn't um, strategic in trying to go somewhere that was mission driven, it was more of an intuitive feeling of just kind of realizing over time that, yeah, I needed to really care about what the company was trying to do. I love that. I wrote a book a, a couple of years ago about this, but the, the notion being people don't necessarily think it's an option. And it's absolutely an option. You get to vote with your wallet and your billable hours if you want. You, know, you don't have to. And I, I don't have any judgment for people that don't want to do that. But I, I feel like if you get into one of those mission-driven cultures and you align with that mission, man, you're on fire. You're not working. You know, it turns a job into something way more and, and more fun. Let's not kid ourselves. It's still a job, but it just can make all the difference in the world, you know? Absolutely. I, I think for creative people in general, or for me at least, I have to give a shit about what I'm doing because yeah. I'm going to pour so much of myself into it. And, you know, you're traveling, you're, you're working nights and weekends when it comes to it. And what's all that for if it's for some brand that you couldn't give a shit less about? It just doesn't yeah. compute for me at the end of the day. I'm like, I've, I've got to do something that I can care about and believe in. One of the things that I think when you go in-house at a client that the in-house culture needs to understand about bringing our kind of creative people into that culture is that we care about weird stuff, <laughs> right? We just care about weird stuff that A, we kind of can't articulate, B, we have a gut and intu intuition around craft and all of those things. And yes, there's, you know, at SCAD, you learned all the principles. I mean, one of my kids went to SCAD. You know, you learned all the things, but it's still, there's so much intuition and so much passion. And it's almost like, I always liken it to, uh, we're artisans, not artists, but artisans are still endeavoring you know it's like if you're if you make bookshelves 
you know, we, we want to make a, a beautiful bookshelf, you know, <laughs> but it has to hold books. You know, if the books slide off it, it's a terrible bookshelf. But then within that is, man, do we sweat those details and really care about how it looks and the U joints and all that stuff that, that go into building a really great bookshelf. And, you know, I think that's something that's so good to put in, especially into an engineering culture. Like it's like, you know, it's what Mark Fenske used to say, you know, putting spit in the tomato soup. But going into a Fender, you know, there's probably a temptation to think of Fender as having a music culture internally, and that may not be the case. Does it? Does it have kind of, would you call it like a musician culture? It could, because musicians are a different kind of cat. It does. I would say more accurately, Fender has a creator culture. Mm-hmm. I think that's sort of a, a common thread culturally is that every person is kind of a self-motivated creator in some capacity. Yeah, now, A lot of them make music and create soundscapes or whatever else but a a lot of other people are just kind of makers and tinkers by by their nature you know kind of entrepreneurial self-starter type people that can just take a task and and run with it so there there are a lot of people who are deeply talented musicians there are people who have toured for years there are people who have been top tier engineers there are people that are putting their records out right now uh there are people that tour right now yeah that work inside the brand so definitely can be intimidating, particularly within some of the product team. I mean, as you would guess, the product team has some incredibly talented players sprinkled throughout. I can only imagine. In the factory, there's some like Ingve Malmsteen level person, I'm sure. Absolutely. Right. Some of the master builders can really, really play. And some of the product line managers are just really talented players. Some of them can really sing too. Yeah, that's so great. Do you guys have a company band? There is. So there's a... It used to be every quarter there was a band jam. And so there'd be like 20 bands put together from different departments and whatever else. So there there are many, many bands sprinkled throughout the business for sure. Yeah. What a great like uh, fertile ground to grow bands. My previous agency to this, we had an agency band that we started to compete in a battle of the bands. And it ended up turning into like a three-year band thing where we actually played gigs and we won battle of the bands and we played at the rock and roll hall of fame. It was, it was insane. And it's just, it's such a great outcome of, to your point of a creative culture, you, you attract creative people, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the creative process is the creative process, regardless of what you're making. That's yeah. kind of what I've, I've come to understand whether you're, you're writing a song or directing a film or making a sculpture or doing any creative pursuit, the creative process is similar across all those disciplines. In every instance, you're facing a blank page. Yeah, and it's a, in a lot of cases, it's about, it, from the start, it's an additive process, and it's about layering, 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 and adding more textures and yep. more feels and whatever else. And then you get to a point where you've got this you know, really solid lump of clay on the table, and then you have to start kind of chipping away at it and editing and distilling it back down to the things that really make it special. And I think that's true whether you're doing you know a print ad layout or you're putting together an edit for a film or a, a TV spot or... If you're writing a song, I think it's a similar type of thing. I have to say, advertising made it harder to write songs for me because I started feeling the need for songs to make sense and to have kind of a a point. Whereas when I was younger, I would just write a song and it didn't matter. You know, it just kind of poetry. It didn't really matter if it had a... Yeah, you're like, what's the underlying strategy of this verse? Yeah, I'm like, (laughs) what's the idea of this song, you know? So let's talk about the brand a little bit. How did it feel walking into what is really a hallowed sort of brand in American culture and around the world? And I would even argue that Fender played a part of democratizing the guitar in a way that the Gibsons of the world did not. 
though I love both brands and there's many brands that I love in the space, but rock and roll changed the planet. I mean, it really changed society and it, it's exported culture. Was that intimidating to walk into that or did you, how did you look at that experience walking in kind of on your first week? In the first week, it was just surreal. You got all the excitement of starting a new gig, you're meeting new people and you, you're essentially walking into your dream job. And so that doesn't feel entirely real yeah. for a little while. Once I got my feet under me and was really spending some time digging into the brand and starting to do projects, that's when it started becoming intimidating. When I started seeing up close and personal the work that the rest of the creative team was doing, the level of polish and execution and fit and finish and the types of artists that we were working with and everything else, all of a sudden it was real, you know, in the interview yeah. process, it's abstract. Yeah. And then once you get in there and you start seeing what you're up against from a competition perspective, even just you know, healthy internal competition, that's when it started to become a little intimidating. Yeah. And, you know, obviously it got my feet under me since then, but we still take it really, really seriously, maybe a yeah. little too seriously at yeah. times, but you're shepherding a 75-year-old iconic heritage brand. You do not want to be the creative team that fucks that up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, it's really interesting because I, I remember, re, you know, as a guitar player, and, and I, I had put it down for 15 years. I picked it back up about a year and a half ago during the quarantine, and I've been playing a lot. But I was reading articles about the guitar is gone. Like, it's over. It's over. Guitar band's gone. And five years later, man, is that not true? You know, everything's changed. But I think also the guitar has changed a little bit in the way it goes. What, how do you look at that? And what do you see there from uh, the prognosticators five years ago saying it's over? Yeah, I mean, I remember that distinctly. There was this Washington Post article that proclaimed in big, bold type, you know, the guitar is dead. And actually, you would have loved this type of shit. At the time, there were, we were working on the launch of a new guitar series, surprise, surprise. And the, the CD at the time, guy Steve Zaitsoff, he was kind of messing around with comps and he dropped the headline into some of the comps and we taped it up on the wall. And everyone was kind of like, there's no way we can pitch this in. We can't sell And I was like, absolutely. I was like, that's the fucking idea right yeah, there. Yeah. That's exactly what you should pitch in. That's the most disruptive possible thing we could do at this moment is fully yeah. embrace that notion and then disprove it. Right. approach it in a very tongue-in-cheek way. So I, I still feel like maybe that's the one that got away that I really wish we would have doubled down on that, but we yeah. weren't really ready to make that kind of aggressive, satirical statement at the time. What you were kind of getting at is the, the notion that the landscape of guitar music has changed. And I think that's what the article was trying to say as well. Like the, the, the notion of the 70s guitar god that wears tight jeans and a leather jacket and rips on stage, huge solo in the middle of the set and all that. It's kind of over with, right? Yeah. It's been played out, it's been done. Everyone's seen it. It's not that special or unique anymore, although there are certainly technical players that can still do that. But the way the instrument, the way all fretted instruments are being used is just sort of evolving and changing. And it's becoming more of a, a textural paintbrush for a lot of people. And it's starting to show up in spaces where you didn't expect to see it historically hip-hop, R&B, gospel, and all these other places, using live instrumentation as part of their sets and using it as part of their songwriting process or using it in production. So I think it's more alive and vibrant today than it ever has been. I just think the old guard doesn't see it showing up the same way, and they get a little turned off by that sometimes. 
this is a crackpot theory, but I think one of the reasons that that guitar god era, I don't want to say it's over because I think it, what it what it is now is a subreddit. It's become like a a subculture of guitar gods, which is still like super cool. Like those guys and girls that can play like that, it's incredible, and I I love it. But I don't think it dominates. It doesn't dominate music anymore. And I think personally, this is my crackpot theory: is that social media has taken all the mystery away from those people. You cannot be mysterious anymore. Like you just can't. Like Steven Tyler used to be super cool and mysterious, and now he's kind of this, I think, awesome goofball. But he's an awesome goofball. He's not like, you know, back in the seventies, man, there was nobody cooler or more mysterious than than Steven Tyler and Joe Perry. You know, and now you know him. Now you kind of you kind of know everything they're thinking and saying at any given day. So, I, I really wonder how much of that kind of culture, you know, like you look at like someone like John Mayer, man, the guy posts. 800 times a day and he's playing guitar all the time and you know he's probably one of our guitar heroes who would rather actually be known as a songwriter you know one of the things we say all the time or at least we were pitching in heavily during the strategy phase of a, a recent project the influencers of new guitar gods that's the face of it now that's the contemporary take there are youtubers or tiktok stars that have 20 million subs or 20 million followers and they're just a guitar influencer I yeah. would argue that that's doing more to reshape the culture around the instrument than maybe some of the more prominent A-level artists that are playing guitar on stage. They just have this enormous reach, and it's a completely new thing. So I think to your point, the idea of the kind of lead guitar player in the band being elusive and kind of being elevated to a demigod status, uh, that era is a little bit over, right, because everyone's so accessible and transparent through yeah. social media. So then there are certain people who have like really leaned into that and said, okay, well, I'm going to make that my whole thing. And some of them have gone this opposite direction where they start as an influencer and then turn into a touring act right? Uh, because they, they generate so much demand and interest in what they're doing that all of a sudden they start booking shows. There's this bedroom guitarist subculture that's always been there of these, like, I mean, all musicians too, by the way of these, like the most amazing drummer in the world is someone who we never saw and we don't know who they are, but they were amazing, you know? And now, now they're all able, if they want to do that, they're able to actually become known. I follow a lot of people who I'll see them and some of them will even have a song and I'll then go get on Spotify and look for them and they're not there. They don't have anything, yeah. you know? It's pretty amazing. I was going to ask you guys about how you look at influencers later, but I want to ask now because you just got onto it. Do you have an influencer strategy beyond featuring really great musicians? And by that, I mean the way most brands use influencers is they try to find somebody adjacent and leverage those people to tell their story. But my goodness, is the sort of guitar world out there couldn't be, I mean, it ain't adjacent. It's like right in the center of it. What's your strategy there? Do you pay any influencers? Do you, you know, do you have an influencer program or do you just repurpose what people are doing automatically? We do have an influencer program, but we focus it specifically within the MI space. So, you know, we're working with guitar and bass influencers, fretted instrument yeah. influencers. And so we, we work with them to just get more reviews of the product out there and demos of what the product is, is capable of doing, how it sounds and things like that. Uh, that's a, a key part of our offense and something that we believe in for sure, something that we're going to continue to scale and work with more creators. And it, it kind of goes to that point I was just making that a lot of influencers are the new guitar heroes. So why wouldn't yeah. we want to partner with them and, and collaborate with them? 
your point around artists being the ultimate influencer is spot on. And I think the, the lines are getting a little blurred yeah. between the two as, kind of, as we were just kind of talking about. So as we're casting for campaigns and figuring out who the right artists are for a series of instruments, sometimes we're really starting to look at, well, how much of an influencer presence does this artist have? Do they have reach beyond MI? Are they playing in another subculture that's really relevant? I think Player Plus was a semi-recent campaign that that really became a focal point. We were looking for artists that were social media savvy and social media native. So Blue to Tiger was our hero artist for the campaign. She's got a million followers on TikTok. And she's a really instrumental part of the kind of New York club scene and is doing something really interesting with the bass, you know, integrating into live DJ sets. And she's also an incredibly talented bassist. So you find a person like that and they just represent this really interesting cross section of different cultures. And you just say, we're going to make you the face of this campaign. Yeah. And that's our influencer strategy. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, right. It's, it's all in one. Now it's not as easy to find. Uh, we found a few others for that campaign that fit a similar mold, but not every artist is savvy that way across all of social media, nor, nor do they want to be, you know? Yeah. So when you find it, it's a really special blend. Yeah, it's amazing. And by the way, they all love you, right? They love you anyway. That's the power of the brand, yeah. right? We, we get to work with a lot of people who normally wouldn't work with brands. Yeah. We get to call them up and, you know, usually people are so excited to be doing something with Bender, like you alluded to earlier. For most artists, they've been, you know, basically attached to their instrument since they were 12 years yeah. old or whatever. Yeah. And they, they grew up with them in the house and there's a, there's a deep emotional connection to their instrument and to the brand that makes them. And so for a lot of bands, they are so excited to do something yeah. with us. And like, that's our, my favorite level of artist to work with is that sort of like rising prominent artist that's, you know, playing festivals and they've made it. Maybe they're, you know, they're on tour buses and yeah. they have fly dates and everything, but they're not all the way to the, the top of the mountain quite yet where they're so jaded is they're so excited. Things are all happening for them. And, you know, now they're going to be the face of the Fender campaign. They're so fucking stoked to be there. They'll do anything. They're super down to make it work. They're just collaborative and excited. And that's amazing. And there are A-level artists that are excited that way as yeah. well. You know, they show up on set and they're a kid in a candy store, but they've all done a thousand productions, yeah. you know, so it's not as cool and exciting for them. So it's always cool to see somebody like, lose their shit a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I, I bet. So let's talk about the brand itself. Talk about the mission and the, and the purpose. Like what, what is the mission of the, of the company? At the end of the day, our job is to create more artists and put more guitarists into the world. I think that's a really simple thing to rally around and maybe a little bit over, overly reductive, but I think it's a good kind of reminder of what we're here to do. And it's a good lens to look at things through. Is what we're putting out into the world going to inspire the next generation of artists to pick up a guitar? And if yes, then you're on the right track. I think if there's something to be reductive about, it's your mission statement. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> Let's make it tight and small and powerful, not uh, overblown. I see people with like these page and a half mission statements and you're like, what are you doing? I, creating artists is what, what a great, fantastic mission. And think of, thinking about what that, again, what that does to the world, right? It imports culture, it imports passion and love and it's a really easy thing to care about. Yeah. It's a great standard to bear. Yeah, I think 
we're we're trying to evolve what it means to be a player, what it means to be a creator or an artist. We're trying to democratize the instrument and democratize making music and demystify the process, make it more accessible for more people. One of the things we're really rallying around right now is we're putting a lot of emphasis on new players and growing the next generation of, of players. It's this idea that if you have something to say, you're an artist. And if you can strum one chord, you're a player. And I think just thinking about it that way and empowering people that way is powerful. I think especially there are people out there that need to hear that, that yeah. if you have something to say, it matters and it's important. I think there are a lot of people that have something in the back of their head that they wish they could say or scream from the mountaintops and they haven't had that little nudge that they, that they need to do it. And I, if we can be that for a certain amount of, of people coming up, what an awesome thing to be a part of. One of the things that I think is really cool and has been a sea change and what I've seen from you guys is what I think the guitar companies used to do in the 60s, 70s and 80s was help the professionals, you know, and sell to the amateurs and sometimes in a symbiotic relationship. And I really like the stuff you guys are doing is helping the amateurs as much as anything. Right. And I, I'm sure you're still helping professionals because they're still artists, but talk a little bit like, like Fender play and the, um, the sort of very, I think kind of mind blowing online lessons now that when I was a kid, if I could have had that, Oh my good. I had to figure stuff out by listening to kiss records at half speed on, 33 and a third, I'd slow them down to 16 and, and try to figure out what Ace Freely was doing, you know? Talk about some of the stuff you guys do to support artists, because you do a lot. And by the way, we're talking about fretted instruments, not just guitars. We support artists in a number of different ways. Right? We, we've got a dedicated artist marketing team who whose job responsibilities are split between being kind of tour support for artists and finding opportunities for content, integrated marketing and everything else. Artists tend to have a rep at Fender and they get taken care of from a gear perspective. And obviously we pay a lot of attention to stage share and we want to make sure that we are the brand of choice for artists yep. of all levels, including at the highest levels. But I think what we've kind of increasingly embraced is that the idea of guitars only being accessible for virtuoso players and that being the only thing that we spotlight or, um, you know, feature or elevate just is kind of exclusionary and isn't a very inviting space for people who aren't at that level to come in and participate in. Yeah. I think there are a lot of retail environments that kind of typify that. So a lot of the strategic intent of the brand has been to appeal to the next wave of people who are trying to come up. And I think Fender Play was obviously an attempt at teaching people how to, to play the instrument. And I think before Fender Play, if you wanted to figure out a way to, to learn the guitar, you were left to just kind of Google around and go down the YouTube rabbit hole and try to piece together things on your own with no real order. And yeah. Yeah. there's a beauty to it being entirely self-directed like that, but it's also really intimidating as a new player. So Fender Play was specifically built to have a, a dedicated curriculum team and to teach people the right order of skills so that they can build on themselves. So you can kind of still go at your own pace. As a guitar player, I've seen this a lot with people that I've even sort of, I've seen someone passionate about it. And I'll, you know, I've given, actually given away a bunch of guitars in my life to kids and stuff. And they got to get through bar chords or they're, they're, they're going to be at risk of quitting <laughs> until they get to bar chords. And then once they get to that, then, okay, you're in, you're playing, you know? 
So just a couple things on that, on that topic. So I think the stat that was really a wake-up call for the executive team about six, seven years ago yeah. was that 90% of new players put the instrument down in the first year of play. That's an enormous abandonment rate. And as anyone who's played the instrument knows, it's just hard. It's hard yeah. to play the guitar. It's hard to play the bass. It actually hurts. It, yeah, it can physically hurt. It's difficult. It's frustrating. It takes a while to get good. And so with such an enormous abandonment rate, abandonment rate, the executive team was kind of like, well, hey, if we can reduce that abandonment rate, we can grow the size of the entire industry, not just our own business, yeah. but we can yeah. grow the entire size of, of the MI space. And so that was kind of the, the main impetus behind Fender Play originally was just to provide a tool that could get somebody playing quickly and could get them to a level of proficiency that they could enjoy it. So then they could start down the really long road of becoming a highly talented player. But what's funny is when you talk to people who play guitar, most people will drastically underestimate their own ability. There'll be people right. who've been playing for seven years and they'll tell you they're a beginner. Right. But they also own 12 guitars and four amps and, <laughs> and they say that they're not very good. Yeah, um, and they're in a band. Yeah. yeah, they're in a bit, but they're having a good time doing it. So yeah. I think lately, as we talk about how we want to evolve Fender Play as a product and further build out our new player ecosystem, we're kind of redefining competence. Competence now means that you can have a good time doing it. Competence yeah. used to mean that you could play Master of Puppets note for note from start <laughs> to finish. Right, and you knew theory. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, and yeah. That's yeah. not really a whole hell of a lot of fun. For somebody who's six months into the instrument, I, yeah. I know I've been there. I can't play Master Puppets. It's like all I wish I could do is play the whole song from start to finish. I can't. And so I get frustrated and I put the instrument down and I walk away from it. And if instead I could just believe <laughs> that yeah. all that matters is that I just be able to strum a few things and have a good time. That's a powerful message for somebody to internalize when they're picking up the instrument for the first time. So a lot of our conversations internally are around rephrasing what competence means for people and finding ways to empower people and get them quickly to that place where they can pick up and play for an hour and enjoy the process and the experience of doing it. And maybe they can share that with friends or family or somebody else. That feels like the end goal in a lot of ways. Like it's almost that simple. Obviously, there's a hell of a lot more strategy behind it and everything else. But if we can yeah. get people to pick up an instrument, play, and express themselves, enjoy themselves, then that's a win. Well, yeah, it's funny that you say that. I used to get very frustrated that I couldn't do certain things that I wanted to do. And I had a teacher who said, you know, you need to learn to enjoy where you are. Have so much fun with where you are. And the truth is, there's a lot of room for players that are not excellent players. to. I mean, you a lot of bands out there with players who are just pretty good you know they're not great you know but they, they can write songs you got to be good at something but or you're just sitting around a campfire man i mean it brings people together you know it, it really does bring people together well i i completely agree with that notion it's kind of why we've been talking about the idea that if you have something to say you're an artist because yeah. it doesn't matter how technically proficient you are if you can write great songs that is the real unlock. And that was, it was a major learning experience for me. I was like six months into the job and I go to a shoot and literally they had like kind of mythological status in my head. It's like the band that I grew up loving, listening to, and, you know, always had a real deep connection with their music. And I got to the set 
And it came to the part of the production where the artist is kind of playing on their own. You know, we, mm-hmm. always, we always are going to shoot B-roll people playing, whatever. And the guy could barely play his own songs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, holy shit, he, he can barely play. Yeah. But the songs are incredible. Yeah. And what I learned when I then tried to learn some of his songs is I came to understand that they're actually quite simple in their arrangement and in their technique, but they have an iconic sound that resonates with millions of people. And then, of course, the lyricism and everything else, the the discipline to create records and to tour them and to do all of the other things that go into being an artist. But it was this major unlock moment for me where even artists who literally headline festivals and sell out arenas might not necessarily be great guitarists, but they can find something that resonates. And that's ultimately what it's about. I had a very similar moment when Sinead O'Connor played All Apologies, the uh, Nirvana song, and she didn't play it right. And it was awesome. And she, she just played it like without the, she played it without out all the syncopation and the, the, and the notes. She just played kind of a straight A chord, I think, or whatever it was. And it was fantastic. And I was like, oh, you know, that's an option not to have to like completely recreate a song. Just do it your way, you know? Absolutely. I love that. If you can put some emotion into it and yeah. if people, if the audience can feel that, I mean, that's it. That's the magic. One of the things that I, I find interesting about Fender is, you know, the P bass is associated with this artist. The Tele is associated with this artist. The Strat, you know, there's there's a bunch of people, you know, associated with Strats. And even like the Jazzmaster, like there's a bunch of players like Dinosaur Jr., you know, Jay Mace just plays a, a Jazzmaster. Like, how do you guys, from a marketing standpoint, start telling those stories? And do you organize your communication around the products themselves or around genres or both? It's a little bit of both. I think at a very macro level, fenders are designed to be versatile. You can play any style of music on any fender instrument. You, you can play death metal on a telly. You can play jazz right. on a strat. You can do whatever you want. So we're very versatile sonically. And that's something our product team is obviously quite proud of. But there is a kind of little bit of a, a genre association with certain instruments like country music and telecasters right. go right. together like peanut butter and jelly, right? They, that's yep. just what people expect. So we do kind of approach it from a little bit of an artist and a genre perspective. Like when we're, we're working on a new campaign and there's three body styles in the line, there's a strat, there's a telly, there's a jazz master. Yeah. We're going to sit there and go, okay, well, who's our Strat artist, who's our Tele artist, and who's our Jazzmaster artist. And you're looking for people who are known to play that body style or people that have a deep affinity for it, even if in a lot of cases, you know, they play 20 different guitars, but the one, the Fender that they go back to over and over is a Strat or the one that they have the deepest emotional connection with is, uh, you know, their number one instrument. So we do look through that lens when we're casting for campaigns and we're, we're, we like to lean into the things that the instruments are known for, but we also like to disrupt that a little bit. Like yeah. one of the things that we've been really obsessed with lately is the idea of the blurred lines between genres or the uh, kind of just open boundary of, of music listeners now, uh, just because everything is so centralized in streaming services. But what we see in kind of the young generation of music listeners is they hop from genre to genre to genre indiscriminately. They'll go from, totally. They'll go from trap to country in the same playlist and not even think twice about it. Where it used to be a much more kind of rigidly reg- regimented thing 
you only listen to country, you only listen to metal, and now that's breaking down. So we're trying to find artists who do unexpected things in unexpected ways. So we're, we're trying to find somebody who dabbles in a couple of different genres and does so fluidly, and then maybe they use an instrument that's typically associated with a different genre in a way that's novel in their own execution. So it's a little yeah. bit of kind of all of the above. I love that. Yeah, I, you know, uh, genres used to be super tribal, right? I mean, it was very like, I like metal. That's it. Everything else sucks. <laughs> yeah. Right. And your style and, was built off of that and your whole persona was built off of which style of music were you most into. Yeah. I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, I think you got to almost give hip hop like the credit for that of just breaking down barriers everywhere, man. I mean, it's it's just it's incredible. And, you know, I, I my, my daughter's a musician. She lives in L.A. She's a songwriter. She graduated from Berkeley and produces music all the time. She's really good. Her genre, I'm going to, she's going to kill me because I'm going to get it wrong, but it's alternative electro dream pop, <laughs> you know, and you hear it and you go, yeah, that's what it is. You know, it's incredible. And she's an incredible songwriter, you know, but she has guitar and everything. She doesn't really play guitar, but she can play guitar on stuff, you know, to your point, it's a paintbrush. It's a paintbrush in all of her work, you know, but she's not a guitarist. I think we're seeing that more and more and more. I think there are a lot of artists just like that who pick up the instrument because they're looking for a new texture on a track or mm -hmm. they're looking for a way to unblock themselves creatively or they just want to be able to sit down on the couch and construct a song and not have to sit in front of uh, you know, their DAW. So yeah. I, I think there's yeah. this, that's a use case that we're particularly aware of and I think it's continuing to expand. I, I think when you look at the acquisition of PreSonos, that is certainly the acknowledgement of that trend. Yeah, absolutely. Just for everybody listening, a DAW is a digital workstation, basically. I find that the DAWs of the world, it's the, um, what's the illusion of choice? It's like so many choices, you can't decide. What to do. You can do anything now, you know? So let's talk about the brand ID a little bit. Have you guys had to modernize the brand ID, change it in any way? How, how have you kept the Fender brand ID, which is super classic? How have you uh, moved that forward at all? Well, a little bit of a sore subject at the moment. Um, it, it always is. Well, it's time for an update. Our latest yeah. brand standards are from 2017, and they, they don't fully represent where we are now in terms mm -hmm. of the visual ecosystem, our you know, better play as a product, our social media presence, everything else. You know, We really have to start building a more channel-specific tone of voice. How you talk about Fender Play to new players is going to be different yeah. than how you, how you talk about a custom shop guitar. And the audiences are going to be different. The verbiage is going to be different. And some of the imaging is going to need to be different. So we're, we're looking to evolve our, our design system to be more modular and to be more of a spectrum that can go from, you know, all the way up to a custom shop guitar worth $20,000 all the way down to a Squire that might be a couple hundred. And, yep. you know, we're, we're also looking to, to build something that can flex into social and can speak to Fender Play and the, the Fender Play Foundation and all these other places and audiences. I think brands have to be multifaceted in the current landscape from a media perspective. You yeah. can't really be a monolithic thing anymore. You have to yeah. show up for every audience on their own terms and in their own channel. And you have to show up in the channel in a way that's authentic and channel native. You, you can't just take the TV spot and cut it down across all the channels. Right. Uh, you know, right. that, that stopped working 10 years ago. So 
we're really looking to evolve how we show up across the board just to be a more digitally native and digitally savvy organization. Now, with a brand like Fender, it's iconic and timeless. And so you have to be really delicate with how you do that. I think the what the current brand ID gets really right, the, the one ethos of the whole thing is simplify to amplify. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we, we kind of live by that. Like anything yeah. that's extra ornamentation, anything that doesn't have an actual purpose as part of the creative, we remove it. We don't need extraneous decoration. We don't... You look at the work that we do, you don't see a lot of grunge textures and right. you know, really aggressive typefaces and all this other stuff. If you're cheese crackers, you've got to do that to make yourself look cool. <laughs> we don't really have to do that. So yeah. we resist the urge to do it. And we, yeah. we let kind of the, the instruments speak for themselves and we let the artists speak for themselves. And that blend has proven to be really powerful. It's also the case that you have iconic brands within the brand, right? Like a Stratus is a brand all of, on its own. A hundred percent. Yeah. And so you have to respect that too. You know, I, the Coke bottle, you know, years ago, there was that sort of the Coke bottle is the, the recognizable, one of the sort of recognizable pieces of iconography for your Coke brand that, that they very wisely said, let's always make that in front of the communications. How do you look at those different things? And and it does it ever hamper you? You know, I know you just introduced a new guitar. What was the reaction to the shape of that guitar? I actually think it it has kind of a it has a it has a fenderness to it, but it doesn't look like anything you've ever made before. You know, how did that go over? Uh, the Meteor has been a smash hit. People have been all about it. I think it's exciting to see a new body shape from a brand yeah. like Fender, and I think particularly the the Meteor base is really really taking yeah. off. Um, yeah. So I think it's just cool to see a new shape uh, with a Fender headstock on it that's authentic and real. I think the other body shapes are kind of hollowed ground, right? They're they're so iconic. Yeah, you can't touch a strap body. Now, they've they've made incremental improvements, and particularly with the Ultra series, that was a real attempt to modernize the instrument. I think it it worked really well. They, They did a couple of subtle things with the body contouring to make the instrument more comfortable. They, they yeah. did a, a kind of cutaway heel to give you better access to higher registers and things like that, rolled fretboard edges. And it's a very premium instrument. But when you zoom out and look at it, the silhouette is still a strap, even though the yeah. contouring is a little bit different than a 50s strap might be. So I think when you've got something as timeless and iconic and sculptural as a strat or a telly or a jazz master, you embrace that and you lean into that. It's not something that you try to disrupt. We feel like that'd be a mistake. How have you dealt with all of these sort of strat knockoffs? Like, I mean, there's two shapes that I think are the most knocked off in the in the world, and it's the Les Paul and it's the strat, right? I mean, everybody sort of makes one. How how have you had to deal with that, or do you look at that as it helps your brand? Yeah, honestly, we don't really worry about it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I think there are the more litigious companies out there who would really try to get aggressive about it and everything else. And that's really not our DNA. We don't feel threatened by it because at the end of the day, if if you want a strat, you're going to buy one eventually. Right. Uh, you know, no imitation is ever going to come close to the real thing. I mean, that was a, it was actually a tagline that Baffle Warner, our director of brand copy, came up with, often imitated, never duplicated. Great yeah. tagline. 
right? And it, I was like, you could apply that to the brand as a whole. It was applied to a, a specific series of, of guitars, but I truly believe you could apply that to the brand as a whole. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. I wrote an ad years ago for Doc Martens when we did the launch campaign for Doc Martens way back in the 90s when they were just on fire. I'm, I'm old. But uh, one of the lines was, um, there are imitation Doc Martens, and when you wear them, people will say, hey, look, imitation Doc Martens. <laughs> and I and I think I think that's the strat. I mean, that is the strat. You're like, oh, that oh, look at that. Oh, oh, it's not a strat. Okay, you know, exactly. that's kind of the reaction sometimes to some of those guitars. You talked about tone of voice. What do you have an articulated tone of voice in the tone of voice for Fender? It's not as well articulated now as we want it to be, and that's one of the areas yeah. that I think we really need to pay some more attention to. Obviously, there of course there's a section of the brand ID that goes sure, into voice and tone. Right. But it doesn't go as deep as we want it to. And particularly as we're, we start thinking about a multifaceted brand expression and a modular system, I think there needs to be some subtleties as you move across the different channels. How you show up in social is going to be very yeah. different than how you show up in for sure. print, for example. So we're, we're looking to evolve a little bit of that. But we, we as an internal creative team are kind of of one mind in terms of who we are and how we sound and how we show up. And even with all the best documentation in the world, I think it would always be really difficult for external teams to come in and nail that. And we have found that over and over and over and over. It is really difficult to understand the Fender brand voice and tone and execute against it. That's why, to me, articulating your tone of voice in the tone of voice is key. Like giving people an example of the tone of voice by the way you talk about it is really, really helpful versus saying authentic, which so many people do. Exactly. And we, we try to be simple in how we explain it. We try to stay away from trying too hard and everything else. But I think that's the fatal flaw we see a lot of people come in with um, when they try to do work on the brand, not internal employees, but external vendors or partners or creatives, they tend to try to dress it up too much and yeah. try a little too hard and try to make it cool when it doesn't need to be made cool. It already is. And you never say it <laughs> ever. It's that's fantastic. Yeah. You get a lot of stuff like people come in and they'll want to write a line like bitch in tone or serious, yeah. you know, it's yeah. like, okay guys, it's like, no, that's, that's not what it is. Yeah. And, and by the way, you're going to turn off every player that sees that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Here's an interesting thought, like knowing what you know now about the ecosystem of Fender, marketing in the ecosystem, the way you deal with artists, the way you deal with influencers, the way you have these iconic products. Say you went back to an honest or another company, what would you take with you to that company? I think one of the biggest takeaways for me that I would apply to another brand is the idea that if we are speaking the artist's truth, we can't go wrong with it. And so mm. I, I think you have to obviously apply that to different audiences, but if you're working with athletes, if you're speaking their truth, you can't go wrong. If you're speaking something that resonates as authentic and original and emphatic or empathetic, I should say, yeah. with any audience, that's really the way to break through. You have to do something that feels real. It can't be yeah. manufactured. It can't be contrived. It can't be gussied up. You have to find an actual human truth 
and embrace it. Man, I can't end this any better than that. That's amazing. That's fantastic. <laughs> How can people find you? Anywhere. Yeah, anywhere you want to go. Your local music shop, online, social media, hit us up. And pretty much everywhere you look. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, man, I can't thank you for being on enough. This is fantastic. Um, I really love the work you guys are doing too. And, and I want to encourage everyone to go to Fender.com and look at the, if you're a guitar player, or a bass player, or any kind of instrumentalist, find one of the uh, models that you like and go watch the video of people playing that model and what they can do with it. You will, it is a rabbit hole of ridiculous, inspirational players uh, showing you all kinds of tones, showing you all kinds of styles. It's absolutely incredible. And, and by the way, your signature series, you have a lot of them have the signature artists playing just incredible stuff. And it's, um, that must be such a fun part of this job. It really is, man. And, you know, we've leaned into kind of content marketing in a real way. And it's something we care a lot about. And we, we like doing longer form content with artists because we get yeah. to see the, the artistry and their technical ability and their songwriting ability. And we get to hear the music that they've written and created that's resonated with so many people. But we also get to get a little bit more of a glimpse into their creative process or the way that they think or their life experience. And I think that's that's really the power of kind of long form content, particularly on YouTube, uh, which is kind of a, a passion point of mine. Yeah, it's awesome. And you're, this is one of the few cases where the product is the content. Yeah, exactly. It's like you don't really have to do a whole lot from a, a product perspective. And it, in fact, we're often coaching artists not to really talk overtly about the product because we don't we don't necessarily need them to. It's like, look, we, yeah. we, we want you for you. We don't want you because we want you to talk about the new feature of the instrument. Like, we'll do that in another deliverable. We want you to show us how you use it. That's amazing. I love that. All right, man. Great having you on the show. Thanks so much, Joey. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. This has been another episode of Brands in Action. Many thanks to our guest, Joey Manfrey. Today's show has been brought to you by Pony Source Brewing, who reminds you with our Lieutenant Governor's Fund for the Fabulous, don't be mean to people. Go to fundforthefabulous.love for more info. Pony Source Brewing, drink about it. Production help by Nathan Nichols, editing by Sarah Voorhees Wendell, executive production by Alexa Ingle and Phil Simons, and music by Medium Heat. All other help from your friendly neighborhood Baldwin Ann.